Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, over the weekend, a woman was charged with assault after an altercation between Yellow Vest protesters and anti-hate supporters at Hamilton City Hall. In the new LRT design plans, it appears that pedestrians are going to be favored over all other users and controversy in Hamilton about the makeup and complexity of the Anti-Racism Committee. We'll tell you all about it. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Over the weekend, now if you haven't been downtown for a while, you may not be aware of the fact that uh, the, the uh, protests, I guess, is maybe the, the better way to describe this, that are going on at Hamilton City Hall continue to this day. I know that was in the summertime they, they were making news for an awful lot of reasons because of some of the confrontations that were going on. Well, they're still happening. And sadly, some of the confrontations are still going on. And this past weekend, a woman was actually charged with assault after an altercation uh, between a yellow vest protester and some of the anti-hate supporters. This was happening right there in the city, at the forecourt at Hamilton City Hall. Uh, Kevin McKay is the vice president of the Faculty Union, a professor at Mohawk College. He was there and witnessed this uh, account and witnessed this incident on uh, the weekend, and he joins us to uh, explain what's going on. Kevin, thank you for taking time out of a busy day. Glad you could join us today. Hey, Bill. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, explain what you saw, what happened in, in, as, as we're, this was unfolding. Sure. So I was down there with other members of the uh, Mohawk Faculty Union uh, just to support, um, you know, the, like you said, the, uh, the anti-hate demonstrators. And I know I was just sort of taking a walk down um, Main Street in front of City Hall. And um, it, it was I almost didn't know what I was seeing at first because it was so bizarre. But I saw at the corner of Bay and Main there was a person on the ground. Um, and, uh, and yeah, this woman ran up and just like she was going to kick a soccer or, you know, a soccer ball or mm-hmm. football, um, uh, went and kicked him in the head. And so then, you know, I started running and uh, a number of people started running, uh, to sort of pull them apart. But yeah, that's, that's what I saw. It was a little bit disturbing. Now the reporting that we've seen on this said, uh, said this was an altercation between a yellow vest protester and, and anti hate supporters. Uh, who was yeah. it on the ground? Well, so, uh, you know, someone I don't actually know, um, someone who showed up to the uh, the demonstration, and I think he, he definitely showed up on the side of the anti-hate protesters. Um, yeah, I understood that um, the issue was he was um, trying to take a sign down. And one of the tricky things about uh, the Yellow Vesters is they will show up at City Hall and they'll, they'll put up all of these signs to light posts and they'll stick them all over the place, which apparently is... You know, it's it's not a cool thing to do under under bylaw, and, and you know, and it's actually okay for someone to remove those. But I, I, my sense is, I didn't see this. I have to be really clear that I didn't see that part of it. But that's kind of what I heard is that you know, this guy was like, "Hey, listen, you shouldn't have this sign up," and then he was kind of tackled by a yellow vester. But then what happened? I think I saw the aftermath is that another yellow vester came over and uh, and was was sort of then trying to put the boots to him. So, and how often do you? Is this the first time you've been down there? Have or do you do this on a regular basis? Because I know there's some people that show up there every weekend. Yeah, definitely. No, you know, for for us, Bill, I think as um, not just uh, faculty members, but also um, as a member of the uh, the local, I'm a part of the labor council, and so there's mm-hmm. there's a, I think a concerted effort on behalf of the labor community in Hamilton just to to try and support a little bit more. Obviously, we're not going down there to be confrontational at all, um, but we're, we're going down there to sort of help lend our voices to these people saying, Hamilton is not about hate, we're not about intolerance, you know, all, all these sorts of things. So uh, I've been trying and working with a number of other folks in the Labour community and the Labour Council to bring more uh, unions down, uh, just to have a presence there. So it, it's only been a couple of times for me, um, and so it just so happened that last weekend was a little bit... Uh, a little bit intense. There was another member of 
the yellow vest that was really, really coming over and sort of harassing our folks too. And so, you know, it was good that there was a police presence there. Uh, I'm not sure if that's the way it always is, but it was it was a pretty uh, a pretty intense Saturday. Well, as you've talked to some of the people that were there, and obviously, I guess others saw this incident as well. Is is there a yes. concern here about this? Well, what some people describe as the in-your-face attitude by some of the people that are, that attend to these things. Very much so, and I think that that's what was surprising to me is is that something I experienced also on Saturday is that there really is, um, you know, the, the tough thing is uh, the Yellow Vesters will often say, oh, we're just misunderstood, we're some sort of community group or whatnot, but, you know, the guy I had in my face had no problem agreeing that they were linked with the Sons of Odin and the Soldiers of Odin and the Proud Boys and the Three Presenters, like all of these mm-hmm. groups that are really known, right? And so it was very revealing. I guess that that's what's going on, you know? And so that's why I think because sometimes people find it hard to understand. Well, why do people come down to city hall every Saturday? Some people have said, why don't you just ignore these folks? But when you start digging beneath the surface and you realize these other connections, you realize, well, that's, that's a problem then. Right. And so I, I think as a community, we're trying to figure out how to address it. I, I certainly don't think anyone feels that, you know, just coming out on Saturdays is, is, is the answer. There's other conversations that need to happen. You know, part of it is the Anti-Racism Resource Center. Yeah, like, like you said in your preamble, Bill, there's a lot going on in the city around this issue. Um, but we can't turn away from it, you know. And so I think that's just why we, we feel it is important to, to have a presence there on, on Saturday. Again, to be non-confrontational, but to make sure uh, the voices of sort of diversity and inclusion are heard. But you want to go down there and you want to be non-confrontational, but do you get the sense there are other people that show up there to, to be confrontational? Oh, oh, definitely. I mean, on Saturday, there was, you know, this one guy, I don't know his, his full name, he goes by the name of Ed, was clearly trying to provoke. I mean, he was right in, a, usually the groups kind of stay, you know, kind of separate, yeah. you know, and, and right in our group, right in our faces, people were trying to disengage, he'd be right up. And he basically said, yeah, I'm here to harass all of you. And so it's difficult at that moment. And, and you know, to their credit, I think the police saw that at a certain point, they kind of walked over because, you know, people people can only take so much harassment. And sure. when you know that you're trying to be provoked, luckily the folks uh, present just knew that. And so, you know, it's almost like on the Internet, right? You don't feed the troll. Um, but that that is what's happening down there. And, and when you talk to the people who come out every Saturday, you know, the anti-hate protesters, they experience this on a regular basis. And so, so that's a problem. So what we're just trying to do is, is to try and just get more people down there because what we think happens when there's more people is there's less of a chance of things getting out of control. Because it kind of backs, you know, it backs the provocateurs off a little bit. I got to ask you, but uh, you mentioned there was a police presence there. Now I've heard yeah. from both sides on this issue over the last number of months about the the role that police play and and the actions they play. As you saw this unfolding yeah. on the weekend, Kevin, how did police respond? You know what? I mean, from what I saw, Bill, I I thought it was. I thought they did their jobs, you know. And and when I was giving my statement, I know I was speaking to one of the officers and you know, quite candidly about the, the, the challenge of how do you how do you do something like this when groups have a right to protest, right? We we do live in a, thankfully, a society that in many ways is still very free. We have freedom of expression. So they have to honor that, but also they have to make sure that the harassment isn't happening. And I think that there's definitely a perception among the anti-hate protesters that there's there's been not as much in, uh, intervention against the harassment as they would like. Maybe that's changing, um, and I, I hope it does change, because I think that that's the thing we can agree on, is that, you know, people have a right to protest, even if we disagree with their ideas, but, um, you know, they shouldn't be able to be getting at the face of people and harassing them and, and, and assaulting them, obviously, right? And I, I think the police have a difficult job. 
I, I think they could do it a little better, right? I got to be honest, mm-hmm. but I, I think that what I saw on Monday uh, was was not bad. It's very very good that they got, um, I guess Mary Long is her name, got her out of there because um, what she did clearly showed that I think that she was uh, she lost the plot, you know, in that moment. And so, um, but yeah, it, it's a it's a tough one. I think they could do their jobs. Uh, they could do their jobs better, but also it's a difficult job they're doing down there. Gavin, listen, thanks so much for taking the time and, and, and bringing this back uh, to the public consciousness. It's a, an issue that we need to deal with, and, uh, and the more voices that speak up about this, uh, I think the better the community is going to be. Thanks again for today. Thank you, Bill. Take care. Kevin McKay, uh, who is, uh, well, I, it doesn't matter about the Mohawk College connection. He's just down there as a citizen when he was doing this over, uh, over the weekend. Uh, I've got to bring Bernie Farber into the conversation. Who, Bernie, of course, is the chair of the Canadian Anti-Hate Network. And uh, Bernie, first of all, thanks for joining us. We've had numerous discussions about this in the past. Uh, yeah, yet indeed. another incident this past weekend at Hamilton City Hall. And uh, this this is a black eye to this community, Bernie. Well, it is. And I'm, I'm you know, I, you and I talked about what kind of motivates this and, and why Hamilton. We have similar protests here in Toronto pretty well on a weekly basis at Nathan, Nathan Phillips Square. We don't seem to uh, have as much of the, um, how should I put this, direct uh, kind of uh, assault of in- intervention on both sides. And uh, I'm not sure if it's the police that are doing a different kind of a job or if it's, um, uh, you know, if, if the area where they are protesting is just a little bit more distant from the actual you know, city streets, which, which is sometimes very important. But for for some reason, Hamilton seems to be an epicenter, and um, you know I, I heard the last little bit with Kevin. I, I tend to agree that police have a very difficult job. I mean, you know, you keep two warring factions apart, and you put yourself in the middle of it. But I think that they're going to have to start uh, acting a little bit more preemptively, and by that I don't mean limiting uh, the ability to protest. I think protest is. You know, one of those democratic rights that we have and and, and must have, the the act of uh, free assembly and all that comes with that. But I think that they're going to have to keep an extra close watch. They're going to have to understand the seeds of what it is that touches these groups off. And until they're able to get that under their belt, uh, I think you're going to see this time and time again. Uh, your point's well taken. I, I, I've seen some of the other protesters at, at Nathan Phillips Square in Toronto City Hall, and, and, and it happens in every city. You're absolutely right, Bernie. I mean, you know, in London, England, of course, they, they've actually got a camp set up across the apartment buildings where people they, can, they stay there, they protest. But but I was at I was at a social event in Toronto this past Saturday evening. I had a wonderful time with great people. But the Toronto people that I was talking to that were attending this thing, the two things they they talked to me about were the, the sewage water, the, the you know the and and the protests at City Hall. And I know they were doing it tongue in cheek. I get that. But the fact of the matter is, uh, that's that's what they're talking about in Hamilton, and that's not what we should be talking about about no. this city. But it's it's what's making news, and it's what people are hearing. Yeah, and, it, and it's making news simply because, you know, you're, you're dealing with violence, and violence is one of those things that people pay attention to. Um, the, the fact is that, you know, you have fire and water uh, here. You have the anti-hate protesters, and you have uh, those that I, I would say, um, you know, are, are lean to the extreme right, uh, and, and do see protests sometimes as a means by which to become uh, violent and to uh, and to take that violence out on the counter protesters. It's not to say that those who are protesting from an anti hate perspective are are squeaky clean. Some are not, and we've we've seen what has happened there. But 
uh, and your, your other guest mentioned this as well, Bill, there is a perception, especially in Hamilton, that the protests coming from the extreme right are not as well managed by police in, in terms of trying to stop violence from that side as it is from the, uh, from the anti-hate side. Uh, and so there's lots of frustration that, bu- that builds up, and the police don't need that. So they're going to have to find a way to understand what the, little, what the ingredients are in terms of hatred, what touches things off. Now, I have to say, and this isn't a plug you know, for, for what I do, but uh, you know, I put it out there. Um, it, my colleague, uh, Len Rudner, and I have worked with police services literally across this province. Uh, we work with York Region Police, Toronto District Police. We work with Ottawa Police Services. In terms of helping them identify what is hate, uh, what are the uh, emblems that are out there, what are the trigger points, and, the, and if it's not us, there are others that do this similar kind of work. Police have a tough job, and they need all the information that they can get in order to arm themselves, and I'm talking about not with guns and batons, but with information, with education. And the more that they understand where those seeds begin and where you have to intervene just before it erupts, I think the better you're going to be uh, placed as a police officer to stem the violence even before it begins. Well, and, and therein lies the problem, because I know in, in past confrontations, and I think that's a very apt word uh, considering some of the things that we've heard in some of the stories, uh, we've heard about that, and, and there are some people that are concerned about the police action or what they consider to be inaction in these situations. And on a philosophical level, you're absolutely right. This is a you know free speech, and, and, and this is what we have, and we should be proud of that in this country. But there are elements of this, Bernie, that actually incite these sorts of activities and these sorts of confrontations. Uh, and that's going over the line, and I don't think you can just simply stand back and say, well, they've got the right absolutely. to do that. Oh, no, absolutely not. As a matter of fact, uh, it's, it's, it's the elements that you, you have to watch out for. Now, in certain other uh, places and other countries and, and in other cities across Canada, they do as they do, as, as you mentioned, in London. They actually have places blocked off in the area, and they say, okay, here is the area where you can come and protest and bring your signs and do whatever you want to do within the law, uh, but you're, you're restricted to this one particular area. I have no problem with that. I don't think that that in any way impacts on our right to free assembly. Uh, it, it allows us to, to be able to get out there and express ourselves as we will. But it's an area that the police have studied, know the geography, have been able to cordon off properly, and are able to better control than if they're just in front of City Hall or if they're just in front of you know, another major pu- public building where they have to always improvise. This allows for protest. It also allows for the police to, to do what they have to do. And the other thing I would say, and this is where, you know, the city budget comes in, you have to ensure that you have the right number of people who are correctly trained in crowd control and in, and in spotting danger points. And from what I've seen with, with Hamilton Police, I'm not sure that they, that they are as particularly well-trained as maybe some other larger urban forces and uh, uh, Hamilton now is a city, it's a large city, where people are using it as this gathering point, hate versus anti-hate. It's almost become kind of the thematic place to play out all of this you know, garbage that's yeah. going on. So it's, maybe it's an, uh, it's an opportunity for Hamilton the police to, to, be, to find expertise in dealing with this, not just treating it as another uh, demonstration. No, well, and we're going to have the chief on later on this week, and I'll certainly bring it up. Bernie, as always, thanks so much for this today. 
Thank you so much, Bill. Have a good day. You too. Bernie Farber, of course, from the Canadian Anti-Hack Network. Lots more to come in the days and weeks ahead as we continue this discussion. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, update uh, for uh, City Council about the LRT project has uh, got some people, well, very concerned, quite frankly. Uh, Carol Lazich has been on the show many times, of course. Carol and, and her family are uh, the owners of an iconic uh, Hamilton business that is right on the LRT road, and she has uh, expressed her concern and her opposition, frankly, to the uh, entire LRT project. Uh, anyway, the article that was uh, in The Spectator today and uh, also covered uh, well here at CHML, of course, uh, has has raised, uh, I, I think, a lot of the concerns that are on the record anyway, but still I think are, are, are things that need to be talked about as this starts to unfold and we start to get more details. Uh, Carol sent me an email. I just want to read it very briefly, and then we're going to get into a, a discussion about this. Uh, she says, in reference to this article, I honestly do not understand in this age of technology why the city is delusional in its attempts to eliminate vehicular traffic. Hamilton has become a commuter city as one of Toronto's bedroom communities, so any effort to eliminate vehicles is completely unrealistic. As mentioned many times before, uh, there will be no park and rides to accommodate com- computer, um, commuters. rather. What about the Hamiltonians coming in from Dundas, Waterdown, Flamborough, Stony Creek, and Ancaster? They're forced to drive because the city is prioritizing an antiquated LRT line that will only service the downtown core over a much-needed expanded bus system that could service the outlying areas and bring people into the city. She goes on to write, This LRT will not eliminate vehicular traffic. It will only cause added congestion, pollution, and danger to our city streets and communities. Uh, th- thank you for the uh, the email, Carol. As I say, not not new arguments, but arguments that I think have uh, have maybe been uh, reincarnated now because of some of the changes that seem to be happening. The the, the essence of the report here uh, says that uh, the LRT system is going to include fewer lanes for drivers, shorter crosswalks, changes near Tim Morton Field, by the way, uh, and if changes are going to favor pedestrians over all others. Uh, and this is going along the King Street route, of course. It was uh, presented to the General Issues Committee last week. And a number of people uh, around the community are concerned about this. I want to bring John Best into the conversation. John, of course, is the publisher of the Bay Observer. And uh, John, of course, uh, and the Bay Observer have been uh, studiously studying the LRT issue and carefully writing about it and and, uh, and trying to present both sides to this. John, thanks for joining us. Glad you could be here today. My pleasure, Bill. I, I know that uh, there are those that will look at the past municipal election, John, and say, well, that was really a referendum on LRT, and that means most Hamiltonians want this. I'm, I'm not so sure that's the case, really. Uh, but the project, at least as we talk now, is is still going through. But it seems that those who are opposed to it uh, are, are getting very upset about some of the changes that were announced and some of the, I guess, the, the, the details about this. And even some of the people that were quote-unquote in favor of it are, are getting a little skeptical right now. What's your read on this? Well, I, I can't understand why they're getting upset, to be honest. I mean, we there is, has been some changes made uh, based on this report that was presented to GIC last week. But the fact is, the LRT was going to be a major disruptor, maybe even a, a total, you know, at the end of the day, um, would result in the removal of pretty much any traffic on King Street, uh, particularly through the downtown. I mean, Bill, you, you get two tracks down the middle of King Street through the downtown, uh, even if they take back all those bump outs and, and so on. What driver would want to go near that, that area? I mean, I, I think the plan from the beginning. You know what I do, John? I don't. I mean, I know your office used to be downtown, but yeah, uh, that that street, and and I love the city, and I love downtown, but but that stretch from Wellington all the way to to about Mary Street, 
Uh, I avoid like the plague, and I do it simply because of the bottleneck of traffic. And I understand I, it's what they call traffic calming. It's a, a road diet. I know all the terminology that's used, but it's a pain in the sure. butt. And me and just about everybody else in this city, if they're going from uh, from east to west, uh, at Wellington, they're going to turn and they're going to go up Hunter Street and simply cut across that way. Sure. I, I guess my point is that, that even without these modifications, uh, I, I think the really the long-term outcome was going to be that King Street would become simply uh, a really no-go area for automobiles. might be a little better when you get out into the eastern portions where the street is widened to four or five yeah. lanes, mm-hmm. then you might be able to still manage some traffic there. But it's going to be a fundamental change in our traffic patterns. I'm glad they paved Cannon Street because that's where all the westbound traffic is going to end up yeah. uh, from now on. Eastbound, uh, we still have Main Street, although there are still people who persist in talking about making it a two-way street. Um, sometimes you get the impression this thing is just being made up as they go along. What, what, this is this obviously going to have an impact on traffic patterns. And, and Carol has, and you've talked to Carol, I know, many times, and sure. as we have on this program, and, and she's not alone. There are many other people that are still expressing some great concerns about this. Uh, and, and the essence of, the, of a lot of the concern, John, seems to boil down to we're still going to be driving cars here. I mean, LRT may or may not be an economic boon. There are those that, that swear by that, but others are more skeptical about it. But we're still going to have to go from point A to point B. And, uh, you know, automobiles are not going away anytime soon. Delivery trucks are not going away anytime soon. And there's, I'm still hearing an awful lot of people concerned about the impact this is going to have on the local economy because of that. Well, if you apply uh, the uh, Statistics Canada numbers and apply them to Hamilton, we must have somewhere in the area of 250,000 automobiles in Hamilton. So I guess you can get them off King Street, and there's still a lot of other streets, but there's definitely going to be some collateral issues here that um, I'm not sure have been well thought out, because at the same time as this is going on, uh, we've got this... uh, We've got all these traffic calming measures elsewhere in the city. We've got bike lanes, and God bless them, I have nothing against bike lanes. Uh, The ones on Cannon Street are the ones I was most familiar with, and they didn't bother me. But you've got to take a more holistic view. If we're we're squeezing traffic everywhere, uh, and then with this major disruption to traffic on King Street, um, it's got to result in some kind of chaos somewhere in the in the system, I would think. And, and I get that to a point. I mean, I'm I'm supportive of some of the work that they've done. You know, with past you know, on on Herkimer and, and Charlton and places like that. I get that. And and uh, you know, there's a public safety issue here. And I I'm, I'm with you. I, I also am an advocate of bike lanes, even though I don't bike anymore. But I can understand why that is so necessary. But and, and I support the LRT. I buy into this argument. I've been to places where they've got them. We were just in Calgary a couple of weeks ago, and of course their their transportation system is magnificent. It's been that that for many many years. Um, and I was just in Edinburgh. I think about a year and a half or so after they finally got their LRT line going, which by the way went from downtown to the airport. But that's another issue. Uh, but I talked to some of the residents in Edinburgh when that was going on. I said, "So what was it like during the construction?" He says, "It was hell. It was just terrible. It was a and you know and they still kind of split fifty fifty as to whether or not it's efficient." Uh, and we're not having much of a discussion about the impact that that's going to have. We know there's going to be construction. We saw what happened in KW and what happened in Ottawa. And uh, I'm, I'm not so sure that we've had a, a, a deep and detailed discussion about how this is going to happen and how it's going to impact the city here in Hamilton. 
Well, what we're doing is sending a bunch of kids out in green blazers, and uh, but it's all feel-good stuff because uh, no, nobody, <laughs> if you're a merchant uh, somewhere along King Street and a youngster comes in, and uh, they're not going to talk to you about the kind of disruption you're getting. They're, they're still selling LRT. And, and you know, in, in Hamilton, uh, we, we people are, are sort of blithely, and here I'm thinking of council, ignoring the fact that, we have now spent almost $200 million on a project that does not have a bidder yet. Uh, and, and if we do get a bidder, we have absolutely no idea what the thing's going to cost, except I think it's pretty much a certainty it's going to be way over the billion dollars. Uh, no sense of, therefore, where the additional money is coming from. There's kind of a hopeful thought that maybe the Trudeau will jump in and, and, and solve our problem for us. But... That's going to create problems because the federal uh, transit money is always predicated on a three-way split. So unless they, why would they change the rule for Hamilton? Uh, you know, only Hamilton. I, I don't get it. So I, I think council, uh, those councillors who have said we're not going to spend a penny on LRT construction, they're either going to have to back down or they're going to have to take a stand. But uh, there's so much uncertainty around this project. We've still got the operating and maintenance agreement uh, to be presented to council, and that is a hard off-ramp. If, if council says, no, that's too, too much, that's the end of the project. Now, based on what I've seen from this council, they'll take the course of least resistance, as they always do. But, you know, there's, there's a lot of question marks over this project, and it's almost like two ships passing in the night. They're... Uh, there's so much foolishness, I think, going on. I, I just really have trouble understanding it. I'm trying to get an answer out of the Ministry of Transport. Uh, you know, do you guys pay any attention to what Metrolinx is doing? Uh, are there any controls in place? Um, I'm hoping to get an answer to that this week. You mentioned something that uh, that's not getting very much conversation, but I, I, I can see this on the horizon, John, and that's uh, if there are going to be cost overruns, who's going to pick up the bill? And I know that you're right. During the federal election campaign from a couple of months ago, there was some talk that maybe the feds are going to kick in here, and, and that might still happen. I don't see it happening anytime soon, but, I mean, you know, they, these guys have got their own financial concerns and budget pressures as well. Uh, but council, I don't think, are actually going to vote to spend any of our money. They, they don't want to get involved in this at all. Uh, so are we buying all this land and do, or not we, but Metrolinks, purchasing all this land and designing all these plans with only to, to have at some point in the future city council say, you know what, we're out. Forget it. We're, we're folding. Well, there's, there's certainly, the risk is there. The elements to create that risk are, are there. Now, whether it ends up happening that way, but I mean, with, you know, I just can't imagine uh, any responsible organization spending $200 million dollars with the amount of uncertainty uh, that exists around that project, it, it just, to me, is madness uh, that they haven't got this nailed down better. Uh, the, the very fact that the, the three shortlisted consortium would not submit bids and they had to retender it, I mean, that's got to tell you something. That, that means the people that know what they're doing took a look at the project and said, we can't do it for a billion. And, and you've still got people talking about uh, well, if, if it is only a billion, and now it's really only $800 million to to complete what's left of it, um, you know, maybe we can shorten the project to uh, accommodate, uh, you know, we'll cut the cloth to suit what we have. 
problem with that is uh, then it, it throws out the window uh, any notion of any kind of transit metrics. You know, the, the idea was that we were supposed to go from Eastgate Square to McMaster University, Eastgate and McMaster being major nodes of activity. So we just say, well, to hell with it. We don't really need Eastgate. Uh, you know, the problem with that is that n- now you're admitting that there really are no transit metrics to support this project. You're, you just want to build an LRT. Well, and and you're right. I mean, the rumors we're hearing is, look, if there's going to be cost overruns, I mean, you know, the people that were involved in the design, I haven't talked to the latest uh, project engineer, but the other ones said, well, we'll make modifications. In other words, we're going to shorten the route. Well, that's, we're right back to square one. I mean, are we going to the Queenston traffic circle again? And if so, why? But that, that, By the way, it, they're spending a fortune in the Queenston traffic circle right now. If you go down there, they're, they're relocating gas pipelines and uh, all kinds of stuff. And, I mean, sorry, that's construction. Uh, you know, so what's going on here? Maybe there's a tacit agreement that I don't know about or that we don't know about. Maybe, maybe uh, you know, maybe Fred is cozied up to Doug Ford. I, I rather doubt that, but you never know. There's just a lot of people sitting on their rear ends right now with this very serious issue looming in front of us. And nobody seems to want to talk about it. And I know that, you know, there are those that are going to say, well, the debate's over and done with, and we're moving ahead with this, and we've got the okay from the province, and that's sort of the case. Uh, I know they've committed to do it, or made, they've committed to maintain the, the promise that was made by the previous government. Uh, but, you know, that that's politics. We don't know what's going to happen with that. But there just there seem to be too many incidents here, John, where this thing could go off, excuse the bad pun, go off the rails rather quickly. And I'm, and I'm looking at city council. Uh, you know, th- there, are not, there are not 10 votes that are th- saying, yeah, we want to make this thing come to come hell or high water. Well, what disappoints me about council is there were three or four members of council who openly uh, supported the candidate who was opposed to the LRT. They went against, uh, they, they, they campaigned against Fred Eisenberger, now, you would think that having displayed their colors, they have absolutely nothing to lose by continuing as counselors to oppose LRT, but they're doing nothing. They're not even picking up the phone and calling uh, Doug Ford's office to say, well, okay, if we did, uh, as you promised, uh, decide that we want to spend the money on other projects, what, what could those other projects be? There, there's nothing happening in that area, and it seems to me that that is just total irresponsibility by those three or four councillors who have already, you know, they've already stuck their flagpole in the ground. We know where they're standing. What, what, are, what have they got to lose? I don't know. And, and as I say, their, their silence is, is deafening at this stage. But by the other token, this, you know, it's going to, push is going to come to shove really, really soon here. And we're going to have to have a discussion at City Hall, City Hall rather, about whether or not there is going to be some financial uh, uh, responsibility here on behalf of city council, and and I that's that's when I see these people jumping up and say, whoa, whoa, you know, we're we're not going to do this now, and and how much yeah, are we going to? The time to dig into this is now. There's 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 time to ask some questions, and and the questions need to be asked at uh, at the ministerial level at Queens Park, uh, not fooling around with Metrolink's officials. I mean, they've they've drank the LRT Kool Aid. Uh, there's no point talking to them. What you need to be talking to is the Premier and uh, Carolyn Monroe. Those are the people at the end of the day that, that can bring some sense to this project. But in the meantime, you know, it's business as usual, and they're moving ahead on this. And, and, and you know, where are those voices? I mean, as you mentioned, this was presented to the General Issues Committee last week. 
Uh, I, I've heard from an awful lot of counselors, and you've you've done stories about a number of the counselors, John, that have just are opposed to this, and they just see this as a big, huge headache. Uh, I didn't hear anybody speaking up at the General Issues Committee meeting about that. They they are hoping that the problem will solve itself so that they don't have to make a, a decision that's the slightest bit controversial. Well, do they know something uh, we don't know? I don't know, but I, I mean, uh, you know, you look at counselors like Tom Jackson that have been skeptical about the project. You look at people like Terry Whitehead. I mean, these people returned by huge majorities. Um, they have absolutely nothing to lose by taking a firm stand. But uh, for whatever reason, they, you know, go along to get along. I don't know, you were on council. Maybe what's holding them back is um, a fear of uh, having projects in their wards uh, cancelled or, or uh, you know, uh, moved further down the, the list uh, of uh, priority projects. Uh, maybe that's the kind of thing that happens. I don't know. But there's something weird going on over there. Certainly is uh, in a in a year where the weirdness <laughs> never stops. Yeah, there's there's a lot of uh, subcategories to that statement. We'll have to yeah. look at into those as we go through the course of the day here. John, thanks <laughs> yeah. as always. Always a pleasure. My pleasure, Bill. John Best from the Bay Observer, and and the point's well taken. Like I get the arguments, and and you know I I can see the the, the cost benefits, and I see the economic benefits of the LRT once it's done. But I I'm still hearing from a lot of businesses that that are concerned about the construction phase. And, uh, and whether or not this is actually going to happen. And if it's going to cost more than they, they say it might cost, what are they going to do? Are they going to cut it back again? Is it not going to go to Eastgate Square? I, I, we don't know. Where is that discussion? I mean, <laughs> this, is, this is our city. This is our community. And there's an awful lot of people that have a vested interest in how this is going to happen or if it's going to happen and when it's going to happen. And we're not getting a whole lot of answers to this point anyway. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Comments by uh, City Council Brad Clark in regards to the uh, dismissal of uh, some folks in the, uh, for their opinions about what's been going on in the last little while, the anti-racism discussion and debate that's back in this community have caused a, a furor uh, with a number of different people right now. This all has to do with some sa- staff recommendations, rather, uh, that were made, uh, I guess, a couple of weeks ago now. Uh, and it has all to do with the uh, the Center for Civic Inclusion. Now, there's been a great deal going on here, and there's a lot to unpack here. But the fact of the matter is, is some of these staff recommendations, which, by the way, were endorsed by the council committee, uh, seem to have caused a great deal of consternation from those that are impacted by this. Uh, joining us to talk about this is uh, Kojo Dampley, who is the manager of programs for the Hamilton Center for Civic Inclusion. Uh, Kojo, welcome back to the program. Great to have you with us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'll talk about Councillor Clark's uh, opinions in just a couple of seconds, but the the greater concern, I think, and and I know you've commented about this uh, with the media as well, Kojo, are are some of these recommendations for the Hamilton Center for Civic Inclusion. Uh, This was a pilot project, as you've mentioned to us in the past on this program. Uh, They want to make this a full-time program now, which is good news. Uh, The way in which the city wants to go about this is causing some concern. Maybe you could explain that. Yes, I mean, I think uh, the Hamilton Anti-Racism Resource Center was paused uh, February of uh, this year. And uh, in the agreement of the pause, uh, we wanted the three partners, uh, Hamilton Center for Civic Inclusion, the city and McMaster, wanted to reach out to the community and ask how the center could better serve uh, uh, people that are affected uh, by racism, discrimination, prejudice. And in doing so, uh, the city released a survey 
they had a consultation on October 29th. And in the survey and in the consultation, uh, residents said they didn't want uh, the center to be run by the city. But then in the recommendations that were submitted to the Audit and Finance Admin Committee on Thursday, that's exactly what they did. Even though they're saying that the the, the city would run it for an interim period of between 6 to 12 months. But again, uh, residents outstandingly said that they don't want the center to be run by the city. So I think that is the critical piece that... Uh, is uh, is frustrating for many, many, many residents uh, in Hamilton. I know there were some recommendations, a series of them, Kojo, but I think it really kind of boils down to one main issue here, uh, which seems to be the city is saying, look, we're funding this thing, so we're going to run it, and, and we're going to tell you how you're going to run it uh, within you know the parameters that we will set up. That's, that seems to be the crux of it, doesn't it? Uh, I mean, I'll I'll let the city I'll let the city uh, 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 describe what they they feel. But from from our perspective and from the residents and community members that we've been speaking to, they they are just this this dismayed that um, they would go through a whole uh, process of not having a center, uh, doing these consultations, providing their input, and then uh, have the city say that we are going to run this. And then when community members show up at the delegation to say, hey, look, you need to listen to us. I think city councillors, uh, at least some city councillors, uh, are taking that to mean that uh, the city should just give the uh, community groups a blank check without transparency and accountability. And I think that is, uh, that is not what they are saying. They are saying that the answers are within the community we, we, we understand uh, how racism impacts uh, different communities, and we have some input in terms of how uh, that would work. So let community uh, take a lead on this and obviously have uh, some measures, some accountability measures and transparency measures to ensure that obviously the money is being spent and utilized to address racism in, in Hamilton. Yeah, what they want to do, according to these recommendations anyway, the city will assume full responsibility for the interim operations uh, of the HARRC and then play a major role in establishing an independent board of directors. Also, the governance model in terms of reference. Did you get any sense at all, Kojo, that, that you and others are going to have any input into that, or is this simply going to be directed by the city? Yeah, so we, we haven't had those discussions, right? So I think that's also a problematic uh, point for the Hamilton Center for Civic Inclusion, because if we had had those discussions prior to those to the uh, to the recommendations that were presented on Thursday, then we would iron out what that would look like. But then those discussions never happened. So then that is why uh, uh, our organization and community members are, are dismayed and asking who's going to be responsible for recruiting the board members, who's going to be responsible for writing the terms of reference, who's going to be responsible for putting a call out. All of these things haven't been discussed in detail, and they've been, uh, they've been, they've been presented at recommendations for council to vote on. So those are the troubling aspects. We are surprised that this actually passed without a whole lot of discussion. I know there was only one councillor, as I recall, that uh, that actually voted against these recommendations. Yes, and and I think uh, in in uh, in the comments that Councillor Maureen Wilson made, she talked about process. Yeah, and I think 
that is what uh, community members and the Hamilton Center for Civic Inclusion are also talking about, right? You're, you're saying that you want to have community involved. You're saying that you want to listen to the community. So then listen, take those recommendations in before making your decisions. And if you're going to make the decisions, you have to ensure that community members know exactly what those decisions are and how those decisions impact uh, their lives with respect to racism, discrimination, and prejudice in Hamilton. I mean, this is not as if this is a brand-new idea. As you mentioned, this is really just the continuation of a pilot project. Uh, And you guys have been there. I mean, I'm surprised that they would move ahead with recommendations like this without bringing you into the conversation and saying, look, you've been doing this for a while. Uh, It's a great idea. We can make it better. Uh, But you just sit back there and we'll tell you how to do it. That doesn't seem proper. Yes, exactly. It doesn't seem proper. And then also... I think people should realize that while while the while the uh, Hamilton Anti-Racism Resource Center was paused, Hamilton Center for Civic Inclusion has been dealing with responding to racist acts in the city, right? Uh, so I think that if if we had that discussion, then we would be able to uh, give them some information in terms of some of the issues that we are facing. Racism in schools, racism in the workplace, racism in public spaces, right? So we we are doing that work and if we're going to be building collaborative partnership then we have to start doing that meaningfully and then also we shouldn't take the community for granted when we do a community consultation they say x we should deliver on that because if you don't do that then you are breaking the trust within the city and the community which already uh uh that trust is 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 at low levels right now because uh, our city here is known uh, to have the highest hate crimes per capita in Canada. Because the the two buzzwords that we heard as this conversation was going on, and this goes back to a conversation I think you and I had back last summer, uh, is this this committee is supposed to be independent of city council and it's supposed to have a certain sense of autonomy, uh, but it doesn't sound as if that's the way it's going to be crafted, the way the council recommendations are anyway. Yes, exactly. And then, again, this goes back to if if they had come to the table, sat down with HCCI, sat down with McMaster, sat down with other community members that have been concerned since the center was paused, we would have had some frank discussions as to how to move this forward and ensure that everybody is on the same page. Right now, I don't think we are all on the same page. And that segues very nicely, I think, into some of the controversy about some of the comments made by Councillor Brad Clark about this. Uh, who has been a strong advocate to, for this committee in the first place. But uh, it, how do we get to this stage, Koja, where this all of a sudden becomes an us-versus-them idea, where the, the contention seems to be, and I don't know if there's any, any truth to any of this stuff, that, uh, that there are some people that say, well, look, at you, white people can't be on this committee because they have no idea what anti-racism is like. They have not been victimized by this. Uh, the other side of that seems to be that, what, look, we can be very empathetic and sympathetic to this. Uh, we should be included in this as well. Uh, I, I, I get the sense sometimes, Kojo, that it sounds like they're on the same side, but the way it's being articulated, I think, is, is causing some problems. Yes, so I think that is why it's very important, right, for uh, 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 white folk or white individuals to understand what anti-racism work really looks like, right? So 
we are not saying that white uh, uh, individuals cannot be supportive of anti-racism work. But then when you're doing the literal work, developing an anti-racism center, then you should be centering the voices and the experiences of people that have experienced racism, right? If if you look at uh, 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 discussions around race, racism, and racialization, there's a term called white fragility, right? In that when white folk are, uh, 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 are asked their role, right, in terms of doing this work, they become very defensive, right? And I think those are some of the things that we've seen uh, uh, through the comments from Brad Clark and uh, 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 certain individuals that, that work with the city. So I think those are the things that we need to discuss, but we are not having those discussions and it's being played out in the public. And that's why you have this us versus them uh, uh, dynamic. So I think anti-racism work needs to center the voices of racialized people. And white folk need to understand that there are certain things that, uh, that responses that they have to anti-racism that they need to address before they think that they are full, uh, active uh, anti-racism uh, participants. I mean, this is the same frustration I think an awful lot of women felt when they were, there's that classic picture, I think, of uh, Trump and his cabinet uh, sitting around a, a big table, and they're having a debate about women's rights. There isn't one woman in the room uh, to have that uh, any input into this. And uh, similarly, I know we've talked with people, of course, from the Pride Committee, too. That I mean, if it's, it's there to represent the concerns of the LGBTQ community, those people should be on the committee. Similarly, exactly. the people that have been victimized by racism need to be on the committee. I, I, you know, I, I am supportive of what you're doing, but I'm white, and I got to tell you, I'm not. I have not been victimized by that, so I can't be that voice. You can be. I can. I can support you, but I, we need people such as the ones that you're talking about here to actually be on that committee to to have those discussions. Exactly. Yes, and that's that's the point that we are trying to raise, and I think that uh, uh, you know we we. We do this work in humility. When we make mistakes, we address it. And I think uh, if if uh, if the city and those that are involved really want to uh, uh, be committed and and bring this center up and running, then we should work in humility. We should work in collaboration, and and we should work in partnership. And they should also realize that this work takes a lot of hard work because we are talking about. Uh, racism is something that has been happening uh, for centuries, right? So people just can't jump in, in in one session or one meeting or ten meetings and think that they have all the answers. Well, we mentioned this has gone before General Issues Committee. It still has to be ratified by City Council. Uh, so you've got some time uh, here, not a whole lot of time, Kojo, but you do have some time. Uh, has there been any discussion at all uh, between your group and, and, and some of the people on council to maybe reconsider this and have a debate and discussion? And maybe, maybe here's a great idea, maybe bring you into the conversation. Um, yeah, we're going, to, we're going to do what we can. I think uh, from our perspective, we are always trying to be in dialogue with uh, with all councillors to uh, to get a better understanding of how we can be on the same page. So we'll continue to do that. And I also think that there are a number of uh, residents that came to the consultation that took the survey, and they are also going to uh, have their voices heard. So we'll see uh, what transpires on Wednesday morning. Absolutely. And, and I know that one of the councillors is suggesting this is taxpayers' money and we have to be accountable for it. Well, <laughs> 
Yeah, but at the same time, you have to let people that are involved in this and dedicated to this to do their jobs, too. And as you mentioned, there are models uh, where there are reporting mechanisms. You don't have to have a, a, a committee that's you know populated by and run by city council. Uh, it, the, the idea of a community group is actually people in the community to do that. It doesn't have to be city councilors. Exactly. Anything, and and like I like I've, I I mentioned a number of times, even if city councilors want to be involved, there are ways in which they can be involved. Um, so uh, the the fact that we're saying community needs to be involved doesn't uh, it's not mutually exclusive, right? That doesn't mean that uh, city councilors can't be involved, and it doesn't mean that uh, uh, the 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 community is asking for a blank check without reporting measures, accountability, transparency, and 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 things to ensure that the money is being. Uh, well spent. Well, hopefully, uh, as they go around the council table on Wednesday at this next meeting, that uh, there'll be a discussion about this, and hopefully they can modify this and get it right. Kojo, we'll be watching. Uh, as always, thanks so much for this today. Greatly appreciated. Thank you very much. Kojo, Kojo Dampley, of course, manager programs with the Hamilton Center for Civic Inclusion. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.